Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly, what am I say, weekly, please, twice weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. I'm going to reflect a bit, if that's okay, with all of you. Obviously, a bit on the protocol, but we've looked a lot at the protocol. We've got some questions on the protocol and the implications. Uh, so less on that. I want to reflect more on some of the thoughts that uh, were triggered from me. I've got loads of emails as well about uh, uh, the interview I did with uh, Bridget Philipson, uh, Labour Shadow Education Secretary. Uh, so I'll be talking about that. Uh, the interview we did and Bridget had to rush off and I had to rush off. So we didn't have time to reflect together. So I want to do a bit of that, if it's OK, with all of you and, and widen it to uh, one of our familiar themes in the podcast about um, tax and spend and its significance and whether you can say anything before an election and so on. Anyway, a bit of that, a few notices, then over to some of your brilliant questions. The debate continues. The debate continues about uh, the DUP, about uh, Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn and what that symbolizes or portends. So uh, plenty of debate within our rock and roll politics cooperative. And of course, we go to Scotland via your brilliant questions. Uh, the SNP leadership contest is underway and I will reflect a bit more on all of that and I know you will too. I'm already getting lots of emails about uh, uh, that and Scotland. So yeah, and other things too. So pour a large glass of whiskey or white wine or get running or rowing or baking because we've got a lot to uh, get through in our time together. If it's all right with all of you, a reminder that uh, Rock and Roll Politics is live for the first time this year. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, Birmingham, March the 21st at the 1000 Trades Club. King's Place on March the 23rd, the first uh, show there just around, by the way, budget time. There's going to be a that is a high stakes budget politically and economically and kind of lots whirling around. Uh, I don't know what the themes will be, but, you know, that will be the context, I guess. Well, what a context for Belfast on March the 26th at the Black Box in Hill Street um, with the Northern Ireland Protocol kind of reaching its denouement as we speak during this podcast. Um, but of course, consequences. Um, but um, I will be coming very much then as a letter from Westminster. I will not be patronising people with insights on um, the situation in Northern Ireland, but we will have a discussion and a dialogue as we do in these uh, shows. Uh, Rope Tackle Shoreham on March the 29th, the legendary Rope Tackle, then the legendary Witham at Barnard Castle on April the 1st, and then uh, the Old Market Theatre Brighton on April the 24th. You can get tickets on all the websites and the links will be available uh, uh, with the blurb for the podcast. Just quickly on the protocol, uh, Rishi Sunak deserves credit for grown-up politics in the sense that he has got on 
with negotiating with all the various parties. There has been no pontificating. He's had to do this stuff. Oh, I'm a Brexiteer. I'm a unionist. I'm this and that um, in attempts to reassure the various um, uh, parties involved, the DUP, who uh, somewhat perversely backed Brexit. And of course, the, the majority of Northern Ireland didn't. But he, he's just got on with it. Uh, he hasn't seen this as a branch of show business or an attempt to play games or to woo a section of his party. He's kind of got on with it. That, I would just say, um, is a contrast to that comedy double act, the Morecambe and Wise of politics, Lord Frosty Frost and uh, Johnson, or should it be Johnson and his sidekick, Lord Frosty Frost, uh, who negotiated the uh, deal, uh, claimed it as a triumph, uh, then demanded it should be renegotiated and threatened to withdraw from the protocol altogether unilaterally, even if that broke the law. Um, that comedy double act uh, has the chutzpah to comment regularly on what other people are doing and saying. But I think it raises this question. If their negotiation of the protocol was such a mess as is now accepted widely, not just amongst, say, kind of ardent Remainers or whatever. Uh, there is an acceptance. Even they accept that the protocol had to be renegotiated. What does that tell us about the rest of the deal that those two negotiated without scrutiny of any sort? The deal, which means, as our correspondent from France, Dominica has made clear to me this week, uh, the deal that affects the supply chain in terms of the food shortages in Britain at the moment, the shelves are creaking in France. Uh, I think Dominica sent me a photo of a French supermarket creaking with tomatoes. You couldn't move for tomatoes. What does it tell us about the rest of the deal, the queues at Dover, the fact that um, so many uh, companies are having huge problems exporting to the biggest single market on our doorstep. If they screwed the Northern Ireland Protocol negotiations, which they did, this uh, Morecambe and Wise Act have questions to answer about the rest of that deal. And remember, there was no cabinet discussion during the negotiations. No cabinet discussion when on Christmas Eve they were presented with the final deal. A commons debate that lasted for a few hours during the Christmas recess that followed the deal. That's been it. Very little media scrutiny. The whole lot needs to be looked at, uh, given what we've learned about what that mediocrity frost uh, negotiated in Northern Ireland, vis-a-vis -vis Northern Ireland. Anyway, there's loads uh, uh, to come on that in the months to come as well. So... Um, uh, let's, if it's okay with you, move on. Now, for those of you who heard the interview with uh, Bridget Phillipson in the one of the podcasts from last week, she outlined very vividly in ways uh, that, um, you know, it, it's great to hear her enthusiasm for a, a childcare, uh, organized childcare system for the UK or certainly for England and her remit in terms of education. Got to add that qualification. But don't worry, my reflections have wider ramifications. She went to Australia to see the uh, where childcare had fitted into Labour's electoral pitch there and noted its popularity during the election. 
it's not like in Britain where if anything's uh, promised, there's an assumption that it's seen as a threat because it's a hidden tax bombshell. Uh, Childcare was part of Labour's pitch, was popular and was popular incidentally with male voters as well as female voters. She had also been to Estonia. Sorry for those of you who just heard this, but um, I'm summarising briefly, where um, they had trained teachers providing guaranteed childcare for two-year-olds and above, and where education is absolutely uh, seen as the centre of everything. It's part of the accepted culture that education, to quote Blair, education, 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 as applied in Estonia, includes childcare. And uh, in general terms, she is making the proposition uh, for the U- UK or her part of the UK, her uh, shadow education secretary. Um, and yet, of course, there can be no specifics because there would be a cost attached, inevitably. You don't get trained teachers for nothing. You don't set up these schemes uh, for free. And this raises the wider issue. How much can Labour say about tax and spend in advance of an election? Now, I come at this, and some of you will have heard me reflect on this before, on the side that broadly accepts that in the British culture, and the media culture, it's very difficult for Labour to put forward costly propositions in advance of an election, however noble those propositions are. You know, as I say, the assumption is uh, it's, it takes some huge tax cut. The Tories will say it's a tax cut on a tax rise for everybody. Um, the BBC interviews will take the form of an interrogation of Starmer, Reeves and others. So where's the money going to come from and all the rest of it? And um, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair pre-1997 decided this is an argument that couldn't be won. Now, Tony Blair has a view which I think is wrong, uh, which is I've heard him say it the other day. I don't know if any of you heard it. Uh, He was on with William Hague on the Today programme talking about how technology, one of his, well, his favourite theme, is the key uh, issue, uh, the technological revolution that the UK is going through. And that this is much more important than what he describes as an odd debate here and there about, you know, some small tax rise. Now, he has always taken the view that the need to raise money is relatively marginal. Um, it was his view uh, often in discussions with Blair, with Brown, when the, he was Prime Minister and Brown was Chancellor, Brown used to storm back in to his advisers, Ed Miliband and Ed Balls, and say uh, he wants t- tax cuts and public spending increases. And Blair has never had a job where he's had to square the, the circle of wanting things and working out how to pay for them. He became Prime Minister. He was never in a spending department. He was leader of the opposition and in the shadow cabinet, he was employment spokesman and home affairs spokesman. They, they are not the kind of bigger spenders, although I bet if he had stayed as home affairs spokesman, he would have pressed for money on uh, policing, for example. He is both capable of thinking widely and being at the same time self-absorbed. And he kind of extrapolates from his own inner experience and thoughts as kind of political theory for everything. There's no left and right anymore, right? It's open versus closed. Now, that you have to translate is he doesn't see himself as on the left, but he doesn't see himself as a Tory. So he's abolished left and right. 
And open versus closed has always been a theme. Uh, corn laws was about op- open versus closed. So if, I've no idea whether he is, I know he is a big influence on Keir Starmer's thinking, but if he's saying, look, Keir, you know, it's not about tax rises or spending, you know, it's about technology and stuff. Well, it's partly about technology and they've got some good ideas, but I'm afraid you can't wave a wand to deal with social care, to deal with childcare, to deal with the shortage of nurses who have to be paid for, etc., etc., Um, Now, Gordon Brown's view is those things are big issues, but you can find the money in government. You don't have to make pre-election commitments because the British debate just does not allow for it, certainly for Labour. So different for the Tories. Cameron, when he was in opposition before the crash, said they would spend money, uh, spare money on public spending and tax cuts together, not just on tax cuts. And he was, oh, wonderful. Look at that modernising leap to the centre ground, not just tax cuts. He's taking them on. They didn't say, well, hold on, where's the growth going to come from? And et cetera, et cetera. And hold on, isn't there a black hole when you say you're going to spend more on the NHS? Than... But with Labour, if they said, Something like, uh, for example, we will introduce Sure Start, all hell would break loose. It wouldn't say, oh, what a good idea. It would be, well, hold on, wait, do you, where's the, there's a black hole. You know, this favourite phrase of Martha Carney when she interviews people on the Labour people. Now, actually, it's very interesting following the Sure Start thing because Labour did find tonnes of money for Sure Start uh, in government. Um, but if they had pledged it before the election, which they didn't, uh, it, it, you know, all hell would have po- probably broken loose. But when Gordon Brown says, as I'm sure that's his advice, you can do more in government than you can in opposition, pledge in opposition. Um, it wasn't that easy after 97. What they said in opposition did trap them in many ways from that moment on. Uh, remember, Gordon Brown had to sell gold. He had to expand the private finance initiative, which was expensive in the long term, but to find money because they had hemmed off so many options uh, in the pre-election period. They couldn't really do much with the NHS. It was only in the second term when the Daily Mail started campaigning for better provision for the NHS and more money for the nurses. And when the TV Labour peer celebrity Robert Winston said his mother would get better treatment in Eastern Europe, that was when Tony Blair said, all right, we better go up to the EU average on spending. But even then, he left it for Gordon Brown to work out how to do it. So he's never really been exercised by these issues, even though they are fundamental. You do not get Tony Blair on how you raise money for social care. You get him on the technological revolution. Fair enough. But this other stuff cannot be ignored. So the issue is whether, uh, we've discussed before, uh, Kiyosama has clearly listened a lot to those, so I don't blame him. They're, 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 they're the election winners, Blair and Brown. But he's got to recognise, as he kind of does, that this is an utterly transformed situation. They had in 97 a 2% growing economy. So they, know, knew, they knew Gordon Brown knew there would be money coming in, irrespective of what he did on tax. It wasn't enough, as it turned out. Also, the the NHS now is in a much worse state. It was in a pretty bad state in 97. It's in a dire state now because of all the cuts with staff shortages. We were in the EU in 97. People were still coming over to work here. And the EU single market was part of the generator of growth. So they're going to inherit a situation 
where in spite of the mission to be the fastest growing economy of the G7, um, the, the and by the way, there's nothing wrong with having that goal and be better damn well meet it. Um, and the instruments are not at all clear, but one of them will have to be uh, investment. And as Bridget Phillipson made clear, uh, childcare over time will lead to greater productivity. More people will be able to go to work. But you have to allocate money. Now, this is where I think the debate has shifted since 1997. It was a form of credibility in 1997 for Labour to say, oh, we're not really going to spend very much, just 10p here on slightly reducing waiting lists, 20p here to reduce class sizes for five, six or seven-year-olds, you know, and 25p there. You, you know, it was it was small beer and that was a form of credibility. But I think now, such is the scale of the challenge and the recognition that growth is hard to come by. This is not a, a fast-growing economy. It's right at the bottom in terms of growth, uh, largely because of Brexit, but not solely. And they've already ruled out going back into the single market and haven't found a form of words just to keep that door slightly open, which I think is going to prove a big, big problem in terms of their growth objectives. So I think to be credible now, they have to say a bit more about how they will fund these things. That doesn't mean they have to go to the sort of 2019 scale of manifesto or even 2017, which was a, a much more successful election campaign for Labour and has been airbrushed out of history because it doesn't conform to fashionable orthodoxy. But they have to say a bit more to be credible. And this is not just um, out of kind of – election campaigns aren't uh, education exercises – of the broader sense, you know, they're, it's, they're not a seminar, they're a battle to win. But to be credible, I think you have to say more than a non-DOM tax and uh, a VAT on private school fees will pay for all this stuff. And so, yes, there's a strong argument for childcare, to give one emblematic example. Yes, it will lead to growth, obviously, because more people will be able to work. But it will cost quite a lot to set up and to maintain, you know, in terms of salaries and training and so on and facilities. Um, and it needs to be good. But look what happened in Australia with a cautious Labour leader. And as Bridget Phillipson said, we're still in the G7. We might have completely buggered things up, if I can put it that way. But there must be some way in which an argument can be made about how this money will be raised in order for the proposition to be credible and the wider pitch. And I think as an illustration of how things have changed, uh, there was quite a sort of a critical response to Keir Starmer's five so-called mission statements. It was all about how, how, how. And where's the beef kind of thing? Now, he was absolutely right not to outline all the beef. There are going to be two more budgets before the next general election. We don't know what state the economy will be in by then, what room for manoeuvre there will be. Uh, but over that time, I think there is space. And I know that some of those who worked in 97 think so too, what you call greater fiscal headroom than they are currently uh, working with. And then these propositions can be exciting and credible without everyone saying, well, how are you going to do it? 
You know, it's all uh, airy-fairy stuff. You know, who's against growth? Um, which tended to be re- the response last week, as, and, and that wasn't the response when similar vague things, propositions were made in the build-up to 1997. I'm not talking about the early pledges, which were very precise and tiny uh, in 97, but other kind of related things. So I think there needs to be a breakaway from the thinking about it being absolutely close to 97. And I know it's they have done it in other ways, the green energy stuff, 28 billion pounds a year. And, um, and in some other respects, they are being bolder to meet the scale of the times. But remember what did happen afterwards in government in 97. It took a long time to revive public services. They did it and they did it uh, impressively. But I think this time, if there isn't speedy moves towards improvement, that second term will be hard to come by because people are more desperate now than they were then. And it's a different kind of country. Prime ministers who've won elections in the past never see a different kind of country. They view it all from the country where they won and ruled in a different world, in a different era. Um, and, you know, this is the country post-Blair that has voted for Brexit, who kind of elected the SNP to majority rule in the Edinburgh Parliament that has suffered the pandemic, the global financial crash, and public services on their knees. And uh, anyway, I could go on. You know, you know, I told you before, it's an act when um, I appear calm. It's, it's really an act. Things have got to turn. But anyway, let me finish again by stressing, it is really difficult for a Labour leader of the opposition and a Labour shadow chancellor. The bars are so much higher. And it is true, and that's why Brown became just a kind of soundbite machine between 92 and 97 when he was shadow chancellor. They know that one word out of place and the edifice can collapse with the forces against them, the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Times, all influencing the BBC and uh, the... Conservative Party campaign, if it can get its act together, will be ferocious and so on. Just to be credible, which is what, of course, they yearn to be, they can't claim to be doing all this on a non-DOM tax and a couple of other things. But anyway, uh, I'll be interested to hear your views. But I thought it was a great interview from uh, Bridget Phillipson because she did expand. You did get a clear sense of what she would do on day one if she becomes education secretary on many other fronts worth listening to. But obviously, she could not be precise because contrary to what Tony Blair thinks, I'm afraid in quite a lot of areas, policies do come with a cost and um, public money. Uh, It is an issue. Anyway, uh, thank you uh, for listening to my reflections on uh, the Bridget Phillipson interview and a bit on Frosty, Lord Frosty Frost and his sidekick Boris Johnson. But now over to you. If you are tuning in for the first time, this is how you get to join in in our Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Make a point or email a question, steverick1414 at iCloud.com. And if you're jogging at the moment and think, oh, I don't want to stop jogging, but I want to make a note of the email address. Well, we're about 25 minutes in, something like that. So you can go back and get the email address 
And Noah, over to all of you. So, yeah, last week, um, well, we reflected on lots of things last week, all of us in our emails and everything else. But one of the things I reflected on uh, was the uh, my kind of uh, unfashionable view. When it comes to managing a party, it is labor leaders are always told to, you know, take on the left, kill the left and all the rest of it. And when they do it, the papers say, oh, the, the, you know, oh, well done, that was really strong leadership. But then a few months later, they say, this party is a bit weird and not ready for government. You know, they're kicking people out. It's all, you know, it's clearly. There are also other issues involved. But anyway, I'm summarizing my view. A lot of you disagree. So basically, I said, in my view, uh, it was a misjudgment to suspend Jeremy Corbyn whenever it was. It was about 18 months ago. Uh, when the first report on anti-Semitism came out and Keir Starmer rightly said, right, this is a stain, I'm going to remove it. And he has done with a great self-disciplined focus. Uh, and, you know, that's a good thing. Of course it is. Who's going to say that's a bad thing? But the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn, A, I think was disproportionate and B, has led to a focus on him, which would, was had completely gone already and would certainly have faded by now. And I think incidentally is one of the reasons why Kistama is interrogated, not the only one, about how he has moved from that period when he worked with Jeremy Corbyn and then stood in the leadership with 10 pledges, which were Corbynista uh, uh, in substance and tone. When you've kicked out the previous leader who you work with, it's a very vivid image on which to pin all these other things. So that's my view. Uh, John from Aberdeen agrees, and he's sent loads and loads of links, which I can't read out, to offer a balance that you don't usually hear, including the internal Ford report, which was much more uh, nuanced um, in its assessment of what went on in that period and many other things. He says, John from Aberdeen, so I better not give my surname else I'll be kicked out of the Labour Party. And it, again, that is worrying, I think, when uh, people who take a nuanced view could are scared to give a surname because they could be kicked out. Anyway, uh, but as ever with our cooperative, there are many uh, 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 people disagreeing with me. And Denise Willier writes, before we hear about Denise on that, I must say, Denise's mother is uh, part of our focus group on rock and roll politics. Uh, we have a focus group of uh, people who were previously Tory and we're following them. Denise's mother is one. Stuart, who gave me the Union Jack socks, he's another. Voted Tory, still still might, might not, disillusioned, but not anyway. We haven't heard from Stuart to get his latest take. Denise's mother, her latest out, out, <laughs> update, Denise says, our focus group, my formerly Tory voting mum, has been busy stuffing envelopes for the Labour candidate in an upcoming by-election and even delivering a bunch of letters to her neighbours. I'm running the campaign, but she volunteered for active duty of her own volition. Well, uh, that is what I think that's the best news Keir Starmer has had for a long time. Forget about Luciana Berger returning. This, your mum not only now switching, but stuffing leaflets for Labour. That's a significant barometer, I think. See, if you listen to this podcast, you get public opinion polls for nothing, you know, focus groups. But back to the substance. 
Oh, Denise says she's coming to the show at the Rope Tackle and we'll bring some friends along. Well, see you there, Denise. Um, might have to rush off after us, get the train, but I'll definitely see you. Uh, have a quick uh, chat, if not a drink, depending on the train timetable. Anyway, God, I'm getting diverted from the substance. To cut to the chase. This is Denise. I haven't gone crazy. I don't agree with your analysis of Starmer's decisions with regard to Corbyn because I don't think there's a parallel in British political history. I kept on, for new listeners, making parallels, you know, Michael Foote trying to stop Peter Tatchell standing in Bermondsey and it all went wrong and uh, various other things. Anyway, uh, Neil Kinnock actually uh, taking on the left in various forms, being cheered on by the papers who then turned on him because the party was split. And he knew that would be the end result. But anyway, Denise says, first, I suspect Starmer had no choice but to remove the whip from Corbyn after the unlawful act notice was served by the Equality and Human Rights Commission for harassment and discrimination after Corbyn rejected the findings of the report. Denise, this this is me now. We're having a conversation. Did he reject the findings? I don't think he rejected the findings. From a legal perspective, this enforcement notice, back to Denise, I was as serious as it gets, a point that many seem to miss. And my assessment is that Starmer, the Labour Party, had no option but to take action uh, because of the legal advice it would have received about how to respond to the EHRC report. Well, that's interesting if you receive legal advice that... um, it was necessary to, in effect, expel, and it was suspended. Uh, but it's it's going to lead to a kind of expulsion of Jeremy Corbyn. I'd be surprised if that was the case. And I don't think he rejected it, Denise. I think he, he, he made one point, which was that the scale, not the nature of anti-Semitism, but the scale of it within the Labour Party had been uh, exaggerated. Now, I don't think he was referring to the report. I think he was saying that more widely in the build-up to the 2019 election. Now, I'm not going to go into it all again, but that was clearly uh, tonally, utterly insensitive whilst being factually correct. I mean, there were opinion polls uh, in which people thought, said they thought that kind of a third of the Labour Party were full of anti-Semitic members and so on. So Somewhere along the line, the scale was. He shouldn't have said it that day. That was the day for contrition. But whether the result of that should have been a suspension stroke expulsion, because as he rightly, it's never going to bring him back in. Once you do that, you can't reverse it. I th- Well, I think it was disproportionate anyway. But you might be right. There was a legal case for doing it. It's a very interesting point. I haven't read that before. Second, this is back to Denise, by taking action against Corbyn, all supporters within the party were put on immediate notice that a similar fate awaited if they didn't toe the line. Yeah, uh, that's, I guess so. Um, But I think there were other ways you could do that. I'll tell you the most commanding position for a leader derives from an opinion poll lead. Kiyosama wasn't 20 points ahead and looks as if he's about to win the election. Uh, my guess is that some would have stirred up in the Labour Party on, from the left on all of this. I don't know. Uh, but when it looks as if there's going to be a Labour government, that gives a leader total authority. So I don't think this was needed for this authority to be imposed in whatever way he wanted to use it. Third, the consequence our favourite word of the legal situation in which the Labour Party found itself is that Starmer has had space which would not have been available to him 
otherwise. I think you mean political space. Well, uh, let's see. As I uh, uh, as I say, I think there was political political space is dependent on opinion poll leads, and then it's a case of how you use it. And um, yeah, well, we're going to have many discussions on how that space is to be used. But thank you uh, very much, Denise. And um, yes, yeah, see you at the rope tackle. We'll have some fun. Who knows where we'll all be in the world of politics by then. And another one who takes Denise's point of view is Jamie Benson. Um, and Jamie says that um, I'm a relatively new listener to your podcast. Where have you been? You'll have to listen to all the past. Uh, episodes. And I normally listen whilst running through the beautiful North Yorkshire countryside. What a beautiful thing. to What a great combination. And I often go past Rishi Sunak's enormous constituency manor house, which I live near. Maybe I should wear a big speaker on my back so he can listen along on the rare occasions that he actually stays there. <laughs> what a good idea. Some Some in the cabinet I know do listen. Uh, Jamie, but I don't know whether Rishi Sunak does. I somehow doubt if he's got the time or inclination. What's his house like? Uh, have you seen the swimming pool? Um, I think it's meant to be fantastic. Uh, Jamie says that um, I'm wrong to suggest that Keir Starmer will be politically hurt. Clearly, in the short term, he hasn't been. But yeah, my guess is there will be trouble arising from this in in, in many different ways. Um, but as I say, it's partly based on seeing other leaders under pressure do the same. So you've got to remember, Jamie, that in government, look at in, in opposition, a lot of the pressures are all one way. He's got Tony Blair uh, on the back of him, Tony Blair's people in his office. Uh, he's got all those newspapers, the focus group and polls. There are sometimes a leader benefits from counter pressures within a party. Remember, because of our first-past-the-post system, the parties are meant to be coalitions, big parties. Anyway, I know this is all deeply unfashionable, and most of you disagree, and so does Jamie. He says, I sympathise with your analysis that voters who don't follow politics will uh, see division. However, my belief is that the division and the media focus on it would have been much worse should Corbyn still be in the parliamentary party. Yeah, well, and he mentioned some of the things Corbyn has been getting up to vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, war in Ukraine and uh, other examples. As I mentioned earlier, Jamie, when Corb Jeremy Corbyn was back to what he really is in politics for, to be a backbench MP and a sort of Tony Benn-like public campaigner. Uh, and that's what he did after he resigned. He was slaughtered in the December 2019 election. He resigned. He was a backbencher. The media were paying no attention. He was out and about campaigning or he was on his allotment or he was in his constituency. The fact that you know all these things that he's been getting up to shows the degree to which I think the platform has been returned to him via this. And you give some other examples. Oh, Jamie says, I hope to come to the Barna Castle show on April the 1st. See you there, Jamie. Yeah, it's not far, actually, from where you are, North Allerton. Um, uh, well, it's a bit of a schlep, but honestly, we'll have some fun and we'll see you afterwards in the bar. Uh, bring your friends. Let's have a group outing uh, to uh, the Witham in uh, North... Uh, in What am I talking about? I'm getting crazy. Barna Castle. Look at your address, North Allerton, North Yorkshire. Enjoy the run, Jamie. Um, uh, you're going to get it's going to be bright and cold this week. On to our other debate last week, which I was a mere mediator. Uh, we heard from the Reverend uh, Canon Paul Arbuthnot, who lives in Dublin, 
and our French columnist, correspondent, Dominica, with two very different views on the DUP in this crucial area of the protocol. Anyway, I've heard back uh, from quite a few of you, and I have to say for the moment, Paul, quite a few of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative is with Dominica. I've got a, here's a Sarah Kay. Thank goodness for the Rock and Roll uh, Cooperative that has kept us sane in these bonkers times. I hope it is keeping us sane. I mean, we're all, say it's all partly an act, isn't it? This calmness. Um, As an avid listener to your podcast, oh, thank you. I've often chipped in. And I have to say, I was gobsmacked to hear uh, from Paul describing the DUP as pragmatic. Were my ears deceiving me? No, they weren't. I'm Team Dominica on this one. And then uh, we uh, got get a list from Sarah of uh, some of the examples of where the DUP, in her view, have not been pragmatic. Um, and it's a long list, so Sarah, I haven't got time to uh, read it out now. But uh, in summary, the whole protocol argument and their red lines are a smokescreen for the true true reason, and that is they will not go to Stormont with Michelle O'Neill as First Minister and as Sinn Féin as the largest party. They'll do anything to pull the handbrake up on Stormont and to use the protocol as an excuse. Paul, I'm sure you're listening. Well, is that the case? Why Why won't they take part in the Assembly? Will they now? Who knows, we might get more developments, might have had them by the time you listen to this. But thank you, uh, Sarah, for your kind words about all of us lot trying to make sense of it all in our rock and roll politics cooperative. And now over to another member, Jack, who says, I enjoy a quiet pint of Guinness in Glasgow's excellent Queen's Park Cafe. Oh, yeah, I thought he was going to say while listening to the podcast. But uh, no, it's while considering Roy Hattersley on Harold Wilson. Has has Hassley written on Harold Wilson? He must have done, unless your pint was leading you in strange directions. Why do so few modern analyses of Wilson consider his inactivity in Northern Ireland prior to the creation of the provisional IRA? And does this speak to a wider myopia concerning Northern Irish politics? I note that despite recent border Brexit travails, Nick Thomas Simmons' otherwise excellent biography of Wilson offered little substantive analysis of the effects of his approach in Northern Ireland. It seems a bit of a blind spot. Enjoying the podcast as ever. Oh, thank you, Jack. Hopefully there are Scottish tour dates on the horizon. Well, Jack, I'm going to be live at the Edinburgh Festival uh, for a couple of weeks. So do come along and uh, say hello at the end. And actually, hopefully a tour later. No, maybe next year. Uh, But uh, yeah, Edinburgh Festival, Jack. Uh, It's interesting, this thing about Northern Ireland. I haven't really followed Harold Wilson on it. I assumed he would have been very assiduous because he he was. He was a detailed person. He was the opposite of Boris uh, Johnson. It completely submerged Heath. Uh, Northern Ireland. It was one of the many crises um, in that Heath period. But it's a good point. I've never thought about Wilson Northern Ireland. It's, it is it is a gap. I must ask Nick Thomas Simmons about it and report back. Okay, thank you uh, very much. Uh, Andy Kemp uh, wonders, oh yeah, now this is it, of course, the big story of the week. And thank you all of you who emailed about it, who tweeted about it. The return of Lee Rowley. I made the mistake of saying at the end of last week's podcast, where is he? 
and he was back right away. There is definitely a connection between all of us and Lee Rowley. Um, the, the background of this is somebody at one of my shows suggested Lee Rowley might rise to the very top. And I said, I've never heard of him. And he was in the government the week later. And uh, then, you know, after a period of quite a lot of prominent interventions, seemed to fade away. But of course, as many of you tweeted and emailed, Lee Rowley was the one who said, you know, this controversy over uh, voter ID when you go to vote at elections. Uh, he said it shouldn't be a problem because a lot of these people won't vote anyway was a summary of it. And so that is the latest Rowley analysis of uh, British politics. And yeah, he's got to be our man, hasn't he? Or our person. And got loads of it. And Andy uh, Kemp wrote, I've been listening to your podcast since the very beginning and now enjoy your extra weekly episodes. Ah, thank you. As one of your Northeast Derbyshire correspondents, you've been good enough to respond to some of my previous messages. After listening to your podcast a week ago, I pricked up my ears when you mentioned my local MP, da -da -da -da, Lee Rowley. You asked what he's up to now. Well, yeah, I'm, I, it was a big mistake because he's back on the national scene. Well, Mr. Rowley's vote, views on voter registration have hit our local news network. It's hit everyone, honestly. Uh, it appears that Mr. Rowling, Rowley has assured MPs that it doesn't matter that up to two million people couldn't vote in the May local elections because they lack photo ID. Uh, why? Because lots of them weren't going to vote anyway. It's genius, isn't it? Yeah, Andy Kemp wonders about our favourite word on this podcast, the consequences of this. I think all hell will break loose over this, although we have discussed it before. Um, Labour Party is very good at getting voters out. It's, 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 it's aimed at affecting them. And uh, Andy wonders about uh, ID cards. I'm a, I'm a big fan of ID cards. It will be an organising principle that A, will address this because everyone will have ID cards. They'll have to have had them, not just got them for an election where they might, oh, I can't be bothered to vote anyway and oh, now I've got to do this. I certainly won't vote. But there are many other advantages of ID cards. It's one of the things that, um, as uh, Andy mentions, uh, Blair and Haig highlighted uh, in their sort of technological revolution stuff. Um, and I think it would be a, a really important and benevolent innovation. Okay, now on to um, the other big issue. Of course, Scotland. Ah, oh, we're covering all the big themes and delving deep. Uh, Andrew Anderson uh, writes, so he's a, uh, in Scotland, a supporter of independence. I enjoyed your latest podcast whilst walking around the sunny meadows in Edinburgh. Oh, yeah, I envy you. Um, back to COVID routines now that I'm semi-retired. So over in lockdown, you did that walk when we were allowed out for 10 minutes. Beautiful, the meadows in Edinburgh. Read your correspondence on Scotland and the EU. One of the reasons that EU leaders have already made it as clear as they can that Scotland would be welcomed back is that we, an independent one, is that we voted so strongly to stay in. But the other is that they can see we would be a huge asset because we are an increasingly exporter of, increasingly important exporter of renewable energy. The supposed deficit that unionists like to talk about is in fact a consequence da -da -da -da, 
of London rule. All small EU member states around us are doing much better with single government, Denmark, Ireland, the Netherlands, within the single market. There will always be uncertainties about change, but the certainty of decline, Brexit, increased inequality and a privatised NHS if we stay part of the union will deliver a yes vote if we get one. Yeah, well, there's, I've had a lot of questions about how the uh, fall of Sturgeon and this uh, rather so far eccentric leadership contest will impact on uh, independence. Um, I, I still think the idea whether you agree with it or not, it is probably more important than the quality of the leader, although this is going to be tested, obviously, in the coming uh, months. I'm not sure the EU will be quite like that, though, Andrew. I mean, of course, they will be flattered uh, if Scotland wants an independent Scotland wanted to rejoin, but it still raises huge issues about currency, borders, and all the other stuff. Um, I'm sure Scotland could negotiate a way in but there will be, on that front too, consequences. But thank you very much and enjoy enjoy the walk, or is it a run in the meadows? Andy Hall has, wonders, see the opposite. This, this election is going to be fascinating. He wonders, does Sturgeon's departure kick Scottish independence into the long grass for a generation at least? Uh, we will find out very soon. Um, but it is it is a really interesting one. How much does personality matter or is it the policy? Tony Benn used to go around saying, it's, it's the policy, it's the matter. It's really not to do with the personalities. Um, although, of course, he, Tony Benn, because of his personality, was a factor in the rise of the left in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, so we're going to learn a lot about the dance between the personality and the policy uh, in Scotland. We'll be following that very closely via all of you and and me, actually. I better pay a bit of – I am paying a lot of attention. We'll talk about that leadership contest uh, when 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 soon, but we, we'll be doing it every week one way or another. Yeah, David Perkins writes, interestingly, you know, one of the, 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 the issues about the Corbyn thing is, is are those two big parties – it was the same with the expulsion of Rory Stewart, Oliver Letwin and all that lot by Johnson. Have these parties given up being a broad church? And, you know, has the Tories just become an English nationalist party and now is, is Labour just a party of a kind of uh, a Blairite orthodoxy and, and everything else is sort of – because if so, it, it, it cannot work under this system. And, and David Perkins says, I would suggest that the only way that broad church politics will return is when we have proportional representation and governments are formed by consensus of multiple parties with multiple interests. Yeah, well, um, as you know, I've, I've become a sort of – I hope you know, David, or else you'll have to listen back uh, – uh, a convert with still some doubts. And anyway, I don't think it's going to happen because uh, if Labour gets in, they're going to do other stuff. They've got a huge, huge amount they've got to um, uh, get through. Now, I think uh, we've been going for some time now. So I've had hundreds of emails. I'll just quickly summarise. Uh, Andrew Stewart says, uh, what, are, what are the implications of the emerging deselections of Johnson's critics by conservative associations? It makes them look like a cult. Uh, but it also enables Labour to neutralise any personal appeal that Sunak might have. Yeah, I think the next election will be as much about the Tory party as it has become uh, as its uh, leader. 
Uh, so that's a good point. And Andrew, by the way, is a founding member of the Rock and Roll Politics Lee Rowley Association. Hooray! He makes the following prediction. He'll lose his seat at the next election. So unlikely to make it up the greasy pole. We'll be keeping a close eye on Lee Rowley as much as all the other issues we've been focusing on. Sean Farrell, yeah, he, he he kind of returns to the theme that I've been reflecting on. So I enjoyed your interview with Bridget Phillipson. It was encouraging to hear that Labour has some proper education policies that could change people's lives. Yeah, I found it very uh, positive and upbeat. He says, uh, too, that this mission, uh, in inverted commas, to make the UK the fastest growing G7 country uh, might be, to, oh, yeah, might be to provide cover for the spending involved in Labour's policy. I hope that's the idea behind it. But how can they do it um, when um, we're out of the EU and out of the single market? And he also uh, cites an exchange in Question Time where Thangham Debonair said, well, someone's got to be on top of the growth list without sort of saying how it was going to happen. Is it mission implausible? Sean wonders. Yeah, well, um, we're going to find out. Uh, We've got so much to explore, actually, within those five mission statements. Uh, I thought... Uh, they, you know, there was the cynicism was unfair because if he had given loads of detail, it would have been back to this whole tax and spend debate with eighteen months before a general election. So he's got to do something. So he's outlined the arc, so to speak, of a future Labour government. But how the more detailed questions are addressed, well, we're going back to where we began on this podcast so we better end so thank you so much for tuning in uh, if you like it do leave a review if you if you don't please please don't bother but if you do please leave a review it kind of expands our cooperative for some reason so i'd really appreciate that and um yeah do subscribe by the way because then you get it automatically these podcasts i notice we follow by you know with the, the great podmasters where uh this podcast emerges uh with uh brilliant people producing it and churning it out uh yeah some days uh when it comes out there are many higher listening figures than other days so you got to subscribe and then you get it immediately so people say oh yeah but it better find out where that is so please do subscribe and yeah most of all Keep very attentive on all the themes from the protocol to Lee Rowley. And we will get together again very soon to make sense of it all. And also, do tune in. Got a great stimulating interview which actually covers, or I hope it will, uh, some of the themes we've been addressing in our cooperative meeting today. Thanks so much. See you soon. Bye. Bye.